When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. They keep referring to, you know, Kaepernick and the guys that kneel and the guys that get seem to get passes on it are Curry because he's beloved and Steve Kerr and our and our mutual guy, Greg Popovich, because, you know, I don't know, they're white authority figures and Pop and Kerr know it as well as anybody. And they continue to bash these other guys, whereas what Kerr and uh and the other guys on the Warriors and Pop have said have been every bit as, you know, critical of Donald Trump as anybody in the country. Welcome to the Edge of Sports podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week, we speak to legendary NBA writer Jack McCallum about his new book, Golden Days. West Lakers, Steph's Warriors, and the California Dreamers who reinvented basketball. It's a terrific discussion. We really get into it. If you're a Hoops fan or a Hoops politics fan, you are going to love it. Also, I've got some choice words about the Thanksgiving holiday and the curious choice by the NFL as far as what city and what team will be hosting the big primetime game. I also got Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down Awards. Yes, I get into LeVar versus Trump. I also got a special letter that I want to read from an Edge of Sports listener. It's absolutely fantastic. It has to do with the Me Too movement. And, of course, we got Kaepernick Watch. But first, let's talk to Jack McCallum. So, Jack McCallum, um, at this point in your illustrious career... You really can pick the subject that you want to write about. Uh, why did you choose this particular topic? Well, there's uh, some, some hesitation about that because my original topic, Dave, I was just going to write about West 1971-72 team. My original idea was to kind of talk about that Lakers team, the incredible 33-game winning streak, and I kind of wanted to weave in the culture. That year that the Lakers did that was my first year working as a journalist and Vietnam was going on and I had just taken my draft physical, et cetera, et cetera. I had just begun work, et cetera. And I thought about doing a book about kind of weaving in the, uh, the culture of the time. And the, the publisher said, probably rightly so, that, well, it skews a little, <laughs> it skews a little old. And <laughs> Couldn't you think of a more modern thing? And at the time, the Warriors, this is the season before the pre-Kevin Durant Warriors, were on this long winning streak. And I said, well, you know, let me take a look at uh, two teams with long winning streaks who are presumably going to win the championship. And they have Jerry West as Mm -hmm. this connection between them. I still get to write about Jerry. Um, It turns out they did not win the championship. And I sort of shifted it to this year. So, it kind of started out as one thing and kind of went into something else. But uh, it, was, it was basically an idea that started with the 71-72 Lakers. Let's talk about Jerry West, and I've got a couple of questions for you about him. What is it 
about West for you, the logo, if you will, that makes him such a compelling figure? Well, uh, growing up, like every uh, you know, every other mediocre high school white player who thought he had a jump shot, you know, West was kind of the guy I looked at first of all. But I mean, you get you get by that. I mean, I, you know, this was back in the early '60s. Then I covered him for Sports Illustrated when he was a general manager uh, in the '80s with the Showtime Lakers and into the '90s. But he, what amazed me about him was. First of all, he's out there, but yet he has this semi-air of mystery about him. You know, we always mm-hmm. talk about how hard he is on players. And even though he had released this autobiography during which was the most, like, grueling self-examination I've, <laughs> I've ever seen mm-hmm. in print. And, and very unusual for a, uh, for a person in sports to do it. The other thing was, how do you stay relevant? The guy was drafted into the NBA in 1960. Now we're talking about 2016, 15, when I started it. The guy is still relevant. How does that possibly happen? You know, that people are still calling upon him for his judgment and everything. So I think it was for those reasons I, you know, I found him uh, interesting. Well, how does it happen? How does somebody who is playing basketball 50 years after Peach Baskets still relevant 50 years after that? There's a lot of reasons, Dave, but I think for for whatever reason, Jerry, although if you talk to him long enough, you'd get the old old school values, et cetera, et cetera, hard work, which I'm not dismissing for a second. You'd get that old school, but he never seems to get into that things were better in my day. Uh, gee, we would have we would have never let Steph Curry shoot those threes you know he never got into that kind of old guy you know oscar robertson charles is starting to do it now anybody oh, that yeah. played after i did is no freaking good and jerry just seems to appreciate the game i mean it wasn't just because he was a warriors uh spokesman that he was going to talk about the warriors would talk about lebron in long periods of time and guys he liked around the league and maybe, you know, he's got two sons. You know, well, he's got a bunch of sons, but he's got two sons that are in the game. You know, Ryan's an assistant GM with the Lakers. Johnny's with the Warriors in player development. So maybe that has something to do with it that he, you know, I know I get that kind of from my own sons, that if you if you stay plugged into this, every goddamn thing was better back when I was doing it. Pretty soon you find yourself just being an old man yelling at the moon. And, mm-hmm. and West has somehow been able to stay au courant. And, you know, he would get phone calls when I was talking to him to ask about players. And, you know, that's very unusual when you're when you're 79 years old. Yeah, to put it mildly. Um, I, yeah, and, and I, let's, and I know we're here to talk about your book, but a quick thing about Wes's memoir. One of the things that he's so brutally honest about is his own struggles with depression. What sense do you get about the role that basketball plays in his life with regards to mental health? Because one thing you can't say about Jerry West is that he was ever in a state of debilitation. Like, he's been so active over his basketball life. What what do you know about how he's been able to handle his mental health challenges and still do this work? Is basketball his a form of medication for him? And does he Is he able to compartmentalize? How do you explain that? 
Well, that's certainly part of it. You know, one of the things I'm, I'm, I'm saying this for the first time, I didn't put it in the book because, well, a couple things going on. He had, he had done this, uh, you know, as we're talking about this autobiography called, uh, called West by West. And I believe the subtitle was my charm tortured life in basketball. And he talked he talked a lot about depression and I didn't want to redo that. You know, I got to meet the author, John Coleman and I are, have been talking a lot about this. So I didn't want to redo that book. So I was a little bit hesitant to kind of, you know, sort of go into Jerry's uh, own treatment of depression. But one of the things UB Brown told me, as I said, I didn't put this in the book was, I, I wish I had a better UB impersonation like a lot of people do, but mm. UB's telling me about Jerry's time at Memphis. You know, I don't know how he does it. The guy's on 28 pills. You know, he's on mm. 30 pills. And he still has all this energy. And UB's talking about, you know, I'm on a lot of pills and Jerry's on a lot of pills. But so he does medicate. I, I think his depression, you know, once again, I'm a little bit hesitant, not a doctor. doctor. He has treated it. Uh, with medication, his life now is very much under control. I mean, him and his, his uh, wife, Karen, his second wife, you know, they have a lot of stability in their life. They're really close to their kids now, particularly Ryan and Johnny. And the third part of that is that basketball, he does seem to need it, Dave. And he would mm -hmm. be one of those guys that I'm not going to say worry, but I, I would think twice about if he didn't have something and, and I kind of see it in myself you know I'm not Jerry's age but you kind of need I've never been depressed or never been treated for it but you kind of need something if you've been had both feet in it your whole life and I think it's it was very hard for him to uh walk, it's going to be very hard for him to walk away when when called upon to do it I'll, I'll do some Hubie Brown for you you say first you got to talk about the pills you have to speak about the pills, the number of okay, pills. Okay, okay, the pills. Okay, okay, you know. Okay, okay, pills. okay. We know you got to okay, talk about that. the pills. Okay, um, but I didn't. So, I didn't talk about them. I was. I didn't want to check Jerry's uh, medication with him. I just kind of right. wanted to stay away from that a little bit. Now, but but let's to to stay on Jerry West. Um, I was hoping maybe you could talk to our audience. One of these questions is obvious, but I'm thinking about the age of my audience. When, when you think about the 71-72 Lakers, which is in so many respects a forgotten team, you've got these big personalities on it, these Hall of Fame players like Wilt Chamberlain. You have Elgin Baylor, who, of course, leaves the team after, I believe, eight games that season. Um, but so, But what was the basketball role of Jerry West on that, historic 71-72 Lakers team? Well, the the interesting thing about Jerry, I mean, and, and being, uh, you know, the, the logo of the league, which is how probably most of the young listeners uh, know him, is that this was an incredible team of losers. I mean, mm -hmm. had social media been around throughout the 1960s, I cannot imagine the bashing that Elgin Baylor and Jerry West would have gotten because these guys were two of the best thinking quickly, two of the best five players in the league, along with Russell and Chamberlain, and we could name a couple other guys, two of the best five players, Oscar Robertson, two of the best five or six players in the league for like 10 years. Mm -hmm. And in, in, in six times in the 1960s, they lost in the finals to the Celtics. 
And then West loses a seventh time to the Knicks in 1970. Then he loses to the Kareem Oscar Robertson Bucks Brutal. in the Western Finals. Yeah. I mean, he was the ultimate can't-get-to-the-finish-line guy, and so was Elgin. And then they get Wilt in 1968. Now they have three of the biggest stars ever who remain today, and they still can't win it. They still can't. They still can't get to the finals. So the backdrop to 71-72 was a team that was aging, um, that never figured out the chemistry between Wilt and Elgin Baylor, was coming in with a new coach, Bill Sharman, who was a former Celtic, one of the guys that had haunted him. So there was no reason to expect great things were coming out of 71-72. And yet it did. How were they able to gel? This is the question that as a D.C. guy is very difficult to ask. But was Elgin Baylor having to retire because of knee injuries nine games into the season? Was that a prerequisite to them being able to be this kind of juggernaut team that won 33 straight games? Well, you know, I I know your respect for Elgin and my respect for Elgin are on parallel courses. I mean, Off the page. before LeBron, before the extension of the ascension of LeBron, when I was asked to name an all NBA team, I routinely put Belgian was my, one of my forwards. I just, if you look at the guy's numbers, I'm not going to go into it. I got him right here. 27 up. points, yeah. almost 14 boards, four and a half assists for his career. That's a, and he was six, I mean, five. He, he was six, five. And he had, year, you know, he had, I think he, one year he had a 38, you know, average 38 points per game. The guy was incredible player. So we come to 71-72. He is injured. Um, he doesn't, like a lot of great players, you know, he, he did hold the ball. I mean, he was a little Carmelo-esque because, you know, the joke about ba- Baylor always used to say, and he said it to me again during our interview, well, I used to get the ball, and don't ask me what I was going to do with it because I didn't know myself. I mean, he had all these imaginative moves. Bill Sharman wanted to play fast, wanted to play up-tempo, wanted the ball not to stick, wanted three or four passes to get a fast break, and that just wasn't, at that point in time, Elgin's game. So they're 6-3, and three, nine games into the season, and there's a meeting at one end of the – they were practicing that day at the forum, and next thing you know – Elgin Baylor has retired and it's sort of part of Laker mythology. And we don't, you know, I got Elgin's answer and Bill Sharman had died when I started the book, but you know, what exactly happened? Did Bill say, we want to take, bring you to the bench and start Jim McMillan. Did he say, we think it's best you retire to save face. Elgin says it was totally his decision that he was injured and he didn't really want to come off the bench, and he was just going to walk away. And in one of the great horrible ironies of sports history, that night, that very night, seven hours after he retires, the Lakers begin their 33-game winning streak with a forward from Columbia in Baylor's place. Mm. So I guess you you have to say – the record proved, I mean, Jerry West had nothing but great things to say about Elgin, but he also said Jim McMillan was the easiest player I ever played with. I I just Mm. could read him like anything. And he did make a difference, no doubt about it. 
I mean, it is fascinating, and obviously this is not about bashing Elgin Baylor, um, or Carmelo for that matter, but when we look at things like the struggles of Oklahoma City, or when I hear commentators say things like, it's actually better for the Celtics to not have Gordon Hayward because they've only had to work in one new all-star and not two new all-stars or that it's been better for Houston that Chris Paul was injured at the beginning of the year because they were able to get their rhythm before inserting this person. I mean, it just speaks to how critical the cliche of chemistry actually is in basketball. Well, the other thing going on, and, and, and this is probably as much as McMillan, but you know, Sharman came, I mean, the big story of that season, I would obviously want it to be Jerry West since I wrote the book about it. The big story of that season, Dave, is Will Chamberlain. I mean, Will Chamberlain, 10 years earlier, had averaged, once again, this is one of the things you and I know, and probably by now the younger listeners, though, the guy had averaged 50 points a game and 26 rebounds per game. 10 years later, he's with the Lakers. Now, part of it is age. There's no, I'm not going to pretend, you know, he's, he's the same player physically, but he wasn't. Bill Sharman says, we got to play fast. I'm going to give Jerry West the ball. He's going to become more of a passer. Will, you have got to become a rebounder, defender, shot blocker, which you always were, but you can't be the primary cog. We got at least three shooters here. You know, we got West, we got Gail Goodrich, we got Jim McMillan. And Will, that season was unbelievable. I mean, the guy averaged 14 points a game. <laughs> this is a guy that could still then get you 40 if he wanted to. He averaged, uh, still averaged 19 rebounds. His assists were up there also, and he was remarkable that season, the role he played with those Lakers. Wow. Incredibly underrated, I think. It's such a crazy thing to even say about Wilt Chamberlain, but when people talk about him, they usually start by saying, great stats, bad teammate. And this is like, the, it's so great, like the living example of the team with the longest win streak in NBA history, like that gets ignored when people do the wilt balance sheet. He was in this eternal battle with Russell and something I hadn't thought of that, that Lynn Shackelford told me, Lynn Shackelford was a former UCLA player mm-hmm. who was not, had a cup of coffee in the pros, but he was the Lakers uh, color commentator that season to the extent you could get in any color with Dick Hearn talking, but. Uh, Lynn said that he really, he was pretty close to Wilt. He said he really had to sense that everything Wilt had done in his career, you know, the scoring, the rebounding, uh, all the off court stuff. He always, you know, came out second in this battle with Russell. And one of the things he always longed for was this kind of re- uh, relationship that Wilt, that Russell had with Auerbach and this idea that he was really a team player. And that season, with Elgin now gone, seemed to be the time that, hey, I'm going to out-teammate Bill Russell. I'm going to be, I'm going to be this complimentary uh, player. And I, I would, some of the things I would, some of his stat lines I would come across that season were, I wish I would have almost had an index in the book. Stats were a little more incomplete then, but Wilt would have a stat line like one for one. He'd take like one shot. One for two from the free throw line, 31 rebounds. Mm. <laughs> Just crazy mathematical stuff that was going on. The number of times that he took fewer than five shots that year 
um, was was sort of it was just remarkable. And I so mean, against he, the narrative for, of Wilt, um, exactly. And yeah, go ahead. Oh no! Just, just thank you for the clarity about the seventy-one, seventy-two Lakers. I, I want to fast forward forty-five years, still looking at Jerry West. I think a lot of folks either don't know or only have a tangential understanding of the role he played with the development of this Warriors team. Can can you explain that a little bit about Jerry West's fingerprints on this team, and also speak about why he's no longer with the organization? Well. Um... I think uh, once again the, the younger listeners who who look at a Curry, Durant, Draymond, Clay Thompson, Iguodala, Steve Kerr coach team say, "My God, you know it's been like this forever." As you know, yeah. the Warriors were close to a laughing stock. They were never they were never the Clippers because you know Donald Sterling's ownership in the odious department edged out Chris Cohan's ownership of the Warriors. But they were bad team, mm-hmm. and even back when Curry when Curry was drafted, uh, they were still having an argument about whether to keep Steph Curry or keep Monta Ellis. And so this was a team that was on very unfirm footing in 2009 2010. So they decide uh, by now Jerry's been out of the game a couple of years. He had left Memphis. If we get Jerry West, this is just another stake in the ground about our credibility so the first thing they do is get credibility hey this is a serious organization this is an organization that wants to win jerry gets there and a couple of the early things he did he very clearly saw well we want we want steph instead of monta ellis you have to make that deal uh he stood between a deal that um they wanted to get rid of uh clay thompson for kevin love and we have to remember what Kevin Love was at that time. This is a few mm-hmm. years ago. I mean, Kevin Love was, you know, by his numbers, was like a top 10 player. Yeah. And Clay was not. But Jerry sort of saw this, uh, you know, how important that Clay was to this whole kind of uh, backcourt formation that was, uh, that was forming. So he, you know, he definitely had some uh, ideas about moving out uh, Mark Jackson uh, for Steve Kerr. So most of the early decisions Jerry was pretty much a part of. But to get to the latter part of your question, so time goes on. And Bob Myers becomes, instead of a GM in training, he becomes pretty much the model of the modern-day GM. Steve Kerr becomes the model of the modern-day second-generation Greg Popovich. Steph Curry, Draymond Green, Clay Thompson – they're all better than we thought they would be, whether or not that's luck or whatever. They're all exponentially better than anybody thought they were going to be. The Lakers are rolling. The contracts are tied up uh, into, into the future. Jerry more and more edges out of the picture. You know, if you had a picture, Dave, in the middle of it, Jerry would be in the sort of the almost the middle of the picture in 2011. Each year the team gets better. Jerry's more and more on the edge of the picture. So Joe Lacob, the owner, looking at Jerry as a, quote, consultant, in other words, a bottom line expenditure, feels that he can cut Jerry's compensation and that Jerry would still be more value, you know, valuable at 
$1.5 million as he was at $2.5 million. Or whatever the numbers, I came close to the numbers, couldn't get them exactly. Jerry's looking at it differently. I mean, Jerry looks upon it as loyalty. You know, this is a marriage. I was with you guys when we grew. Yeah, I'm not a player. I'm not up there every day. But he took a lot of offense and umbrage to it. And at the same time, he was getting seduced by the Clippers for largely the, uh, the same reasons that the Warriors wanted them. The, Warriors, the Clippers obviously are a better team, but they still with that franchise tug, hung with the tag, you know, can't bring it to the finish line. So all those things conspired. And uh, I know that, you know, I was with them that last game when the Warriors uh, won the title. And Jerry's waiting in the tunnel to talk to two of the guys he had become closest to, Draymond Green and Durant. And, you know, they didn't want him to go. I mean, they weren't going to go to management and say, you got to pay Jerry. You know, it wasn't the most important thing on their plate. But it really hurt some of the Warriors, and it desperately hurt Jerry West when, uh, when he separated from the Warriors. And that's on Joe Lacob, right? I mean, if we're talking about accountability for how Jerry West was treated. Oh, there's no question. I mean, you know, I mean, and that's, that's you know, the, the business person would argue, uh, well, that's Joe Lacob's job. You know, he's tending to the uh, bottom line. And all right, you know, I mean, you can make that argument if you want to make that argument. I wouldn't make that argument. A lot of things going on with the Warriors are uh, tied to their move to the Chase Center. You know, the ch- they're moving out of their great old mm-hmm. hot-smoking home in Oracle Arena and heading over to San Francisco in 2019, just around the time that everybody's contracts <laughs> are mm-hmm. expiring, that we could get over to the Chase Center and Steph and KD and Clay and Draymond and uh, the boys are no longer the juggernaut that they were. And maybe some changes have to be made in that respect. So all that's part of it, too. Uh, but it now, was definitely Joe Lacob's. Go ahead. Oh, no. Yeah, it's it's such an old school owner mindset, this Joe Lacob thing that we're talking about. And he likes to play like he's got like the Silicon Valley mindset and that you can understand the success of the team, not by you know landing some incredibly – either lucky or brilliantly scouted draft picks uh, or the fact that players took less money like Steph uh, because of the, the ankle issues. Like it's, it's because of this magical thing they call Silicon Valley. Um, How much of that in your assessment of this team, how much of that is actually real that there's something about the connection between Silicon Valley and the way this team plays and is run and how much of that is branding BS? A lot of it is branding BS because, you know, the smartest people there will tell you. I was talking to Rick Welch, who is the CFO, who has been around. I don't think that's his exact title, but Rick runs a business operation. Long-time NBA hand. David Stern's right-hand man when you couldn't sell, uh, you know, the NBA for a candy bar. You know, nobody wanted mm-hmm. it. And Rick was in there in the trenches. And Rick, during our interview we started talking about this and we weren't specifically talking about Joe Lacob. And he said, you know, none of this goes anywhere. This is a player business and it's a people business. And you can have all the philosophy you want, but if you don't have 
Steve Kerr coaching that team and you don't have Steph Curry and Durant willing to share leadership and Draymond and Clay Thompson and Draymond willing to take less of a role on the offense, you don't have anything. And as Rick was saying this, he suddenly goes, no, I'm not talking about Joe Lake. You know, I'm not talking about, you know, Lake. But in a way, he kind of was. I mean, any time an owner tries to take ownership of what happens, mm-hmm. uh, it, it, you know, it just doesn't work. It's, there's too many factors involved. I will say this, that this idea that we are one organization, that the business side you know, flows into the basketball operation and vice versa. That is a thing with the Warriors, that Lakeup will come down and Kerr and Myers, Bob Myers, are not afraid to talk to him. He's not up on an ivory tower somewhere. You know, he's not Jack Kent Cook watching how much, uh, you know, soda is being put in the soda machine. He was the owner during the, you know, the Lakers part of this that I wrote about. So he's not, he's not that at all so to a certain extent he deserved credit for that but the idea that this came about because of silicon valley principles is nonsense and i also gotta ask you like you you write in the book a great deal um about steve kerr as an innovator and i you know he's he's a great interview great guy people love steve kerr but i need to ask you the mark jackson question i mean of course mark jackson uh, as coach, got the team to play defense. They won 51 games. They made it to the second round of the playoffs. They scared a very frightening Spurs team. A uh, little dip the next year, but still got him back to the playoffs. When he, he was fired, it, it was really surprising to a lot of folks. So the big question, if Mark Jackson had been kept as coach of that team, do they still make this leap, or was that the special sauce that Steve Kerr brought? Oh man, that's a that's a uh, tough question. In fact, I think I even I think I even raised it in the book uh, and 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 failed to uh, failed to uh, answer it. Steve Kerr, when you compare him to Mark, I mean, Mark had had a couple things going on. I, just recently, by the way, um, or not that recently, but somebody asked Steve Kerr a question about, well, what did you do to the Warriors' defense? And Steve Kerr, to his credit, says, "I didn't do anything. That was Mark Jackson." You know? mm-hmm. So every good every good coach leaves some imprint upon the team, and there's no doubt that a defensive philosophy and a defensive orientation had a lot to do with where the Warriors are because, actually, their special sauce on the court, Dave, you could argue, is that they're also a really, really good defensive team. Mm-hmm. And all these offensive wonders teams, like our beloved Phoenix Suns that came along, just not nearly as good as the Warriors were uh, defensively. Anyway, I'm going to put it this way. Larry Riley, uh, who's sort of one of these NBA lifers that nobody really knows, uh, Larry Riley drafted Steve, Steph Curry. Nobody in the organization gave a crap about Steph Curry. A lot of the league didn't give a crap about Steph Curry. Steph Curry didn't want to come to the Warriors. Larry Riley said, hey, that's fine. Okay, you don't have to work out for us. We're picking your ass, you know, <laughs> and we're going to make it work. That was Larry Riley, who was the general manager. But from the moment that Lakeup and Goober bought in, which was a year, uh, Peter Goober being the other owner, which was a year after Steph was drafted, 
think I have that right. Well, there was going to be a new way to the organization. And very quickly, Bob Myers became their model of what a general manager was, and Larry Riley is, was not. I think it's very, very comparable to coaching. Mm. Mark Jackson was not their model. You know, Mark, a little more irascible, a little more uh, creative disorganization, a little bit more detached from ownership, a little bit more, you know, not as, uh, I don't want to say smooth because that sounds like I'm demeaning Kerr, but Steve Kerr was the model of what their coach was in much the same way that Bob. I, it doesn't have anything to do with race. I'm, in this situation, I'm not getting into race. But I think Steve Kerr was more of their model of what the modern-day coach was than Mark Jackson was, same as it was Myers more than Larry Riley for general manager. Well, the, the one uh, race reading on this was, uh, well, it's two things. One was when... There was some comment from Warriors management that Steve Kerr is the kind of guy you can play golf with or something like that. And people were like, hmm, that sounds a little fishy. That yeah, sounds that's, a little that, Yeah, I, yeah but, that didn't, I don't think that was – but, you know, I suppose if you would have substituted the kind of guy – if you would have substituted anything but golf, uh, you know, maybe it would have worked better. There, There were – shades of it you know there was there was uh mark's religion gone on too dave you know yeah. there was uh and instances of uh of of mark uh, preaching and uh what what you know still living in los angeles and an issue with the uh one coach videotaping uh another coach but this was a kind of creative chaos in which mark functioned i mean yeah. mark that's how he was in his career he was i'm in your face man i'm I'm feisty. F you. Well, I know you heard the stories of when he was signed in Utah and immediately in this very placid locker room, it becomes, are you with me or are you with Stockton? Who's going to be the point guard? And created a lot of bruises. And that's how Mark, you know, if you look at their playing career, I mean, that's how Mark got to the top. There is Mark. I don't think, I don't think one NBA fan in 500 would be able to name you the top five in assists right? <laughs> in, in, in NBA. That's how Mark Jackson got it. That's how he got to where he was. Steve, you know, Steve played in Kerr, played in like 950 NBA games. He started 30 of them. You know, <laughs> that's all. And, and I think 25 of them were in his first couple of years. So he sort of, <coughs> sorry, he sort of understood this, you know, role player fitting in complimentary guy better than uh, certainly better than Mark Jackson did. Their careers just went differently. So if Steve Kerr had done less of a job with these Warriors, uh, obviously would be debating this more. I'll tell you what Jerry West told me, though. Jerry West said, I hope Mark Jackson gets another shot. Uh, You know, I hope he gets another shot shot at an NBA bench. And what's that about? That people have certainly had his name in the running for several jobs. Why isn't Mark Jackson employed as an NBA head coach? I probably think it has something to do with Golden State. I probably think, uh, you know, I think the assistant, I don't think 
what he did with uh, on the court with Golden State had anything to do with it. I think uh, that he still, you know, that incident with one assistant coach uh, videotaping uh, right. the other coaches, I, I think that spells to a lot of people, um, you know, maybe a locker room that wasn't completely in control, but there's a lot of locker rooms not completely, <laughs> not completely in control. And to answer that question, you know, I really don't know. And somewhere down the line, you know, particularly since Mark keeps his hand in the game, I would guess that he will get a shot somewhere. And I got to ask you also about like the, the big story in sports this last year is of course, uh, athletes being much more political, uh, particularly black athletes, particularly on questions of racism. And the Warriors have been at the heart of this, you know, some going out of their way to speak out like like David West and some being dragged into it like Steph Curry by Donald Trump. And I got to ask you, like how and of course, Draymond is, is being very political as well. Even Kevin Durant has made his political statements and of course, Steve Kerr, very political. How does that fit with what you know about the Warriors? Does it disrupt how this team operates, or does it flow within uh, the general framework of how this team has been constructed culturally? Definitely, whether that was A, B, or C, whether that was C, definitely the last one you said. <laughs> that's a good way to put it. It flows into the whole thing early in the season. Whenever I would go to talk to Steve Kerr, uh, you know, several times during the year, I would just say, uh, well, you know, maybe we had a half hour to talk. I'd say, all right, well, let's do, you know, let's do 10 minutes and get Trump off of our, get, get Trump off our minds, you know, <laughs> and, we, and we'd talk about it. And one day I said to Steve, well, what would you do if you had somebody, you know, one or two players or two players who really strongly felt the other way, you know, which has happened. You got a football team, you know, if you, if we, you know, obviously we're talking a little bit about Kaepernick, even because he's tangential to every conversation about this, you got 55 guys or whatever you have on a football team. Somebody there is not going to feel the way that you do. And so I said that to Kerr, well, what if you had that? Would you be as outspoken? He said, well, I don't know, but I do know on this team, it's not a problem. <laughs> that Trump mm -hmm. is somewhat of a unifying force. But I think if you took the league as a whole, Dave, and you know this better than I do, if you took the league historically and all through time, now as a, as a particular, obviously, as you mentioned, different and more, uh, more immediate, if you took the NBA through time, it has always been more of that type of league. It has always been guys a little more willing to speak out, guys taking stands. Uh, well, you know, a long time ago, uh, you know, Chris Jackson, you know, what he went through. It's always been that type of league. And uh, I, I think that kind of flowed naturally. San Francisco, the Bay Area, maybe they feel a little bit freer to speak. Uh, the team leaders, Draymond and, and Curry, talk a certain way. Their coach talks a certain way. Their owners are, you know, I don't really know Joe Lacob's politics, but Peter Goober's a Hollywood guy, you know. So 
I think it all. Oh, that means a different thing so, these days. Well, that's probably true. You know, yeah. <laughs> things are changing daily. As a matter oh, of fact, I know, I being know, I'm exhausted all the time. Being a Minnesota Democrat changes uh, changes daily. You know, certainly does. So, but it, it it just kind of flowed within that organization. I described it in the book as you know they they tackle the social issues like divers from a dock. You know, you give it. You give it to them and they'll run with it. And, uh, you know, I think it's been pretty refreshing and it's been interesting to me how in this dialogue, this eternal dialogue throughout the country, they keep referring to, you know, Kaepernick and the guys that kneel and the guys that get seem to get passes on it are Curry because he's beloved and Steve Kerr and our and our mutual guy Greg Popovich, because you know I don't know they're white authority figures, and Pop and Kerr know it as well as anybody, and they continue to bash these other guys. Whereas what Kerr and uh, and the other guys on the Warriors and Pop have said have been every bit as you know critical of Donald Trump as anybody in the country. Mm-hmm. Now, how did Pop, you mentioned Coach Pop, how did he help you with, with Golden Days? What was his role in this book? Well, uh, first of all, you always, you always want to talk to Pop, uh, as you know. You, you know. He's just, you bounce, you have guys, when, when you do something, I'm not doing it as a beat anymore, but when you do stuff in the league and you've you got to make certain decisions about a person or the way somebody's playing, Pop's just one of the level heads you want to talk to. Hey, is this a fad? Is this a trend? Is this guy really good? And off the record, he'll kind of, yeah, yeah, you know, or he'll, he'll kind of lead you the right way. So I wanted to talk to Pop. You know, Pop hates to talk about himself, but I wanted to talk to him about uh, Kerr, you know, because Kerr was one of his disciples. Mm-hmm. But we started talking about, we drifted into two other things, which was, first of all, Jerry West, and secondly, Steph Curry. And he was great about Jerry West. I mean, he got to the essence of West as a general manager. He said that when he was first getting in the league, uh, you know, he he may have been a little self-effacing, you know, how Pop can get. But, you know, uh, R.C., man, R.C. Buford and I, we were afraid to call Jerry West. You know, we'd go, you call Jerry. No, you call Jerry. And it sort of spoke to the way people looked. At, at Jerry West, that he always had this kind of edge because he was such a god in the league. The other thing he said was when they got to know him a little more, that what he appreciated most about West was his generosity in talking about, you know, quote, your team. In other words, my team. He would, And Jerry still does that, and other guys mentioned it. He'll get a call from the Portland Trailblazers, and he'll say, hey, I really like uh, Lillard. Hey, you're really doing good things. You know, he'll he'll talk about their team, and it's part of this idea of being uh, still invested in the game at the age of 79. As far as the Warriors went, uh, I expected him to say, "Well, you know, I don't know. Curry he shoots a little too far out, and he throws the damn ball away, and uh, they take too many crazy shots." It was completely opposite. And when it was uh, Pop starting to talk about what the Warrior offense was that I really started thinking about this idea of how revolutionary they was. They are. And that is with how far you have to guard Curry from the basket. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I wish I and how it a, stretches a and pressures a defense. Yeah. I mean, pop is starting to get more and more animated and he's going, well, yeah, 
Well, now you're big men. They're 40 feet from the goddamn basket. <laughs> all right, so they're out there scattershot. They're all around the place. They're setting three screens. All right, well, you say your assistant says, all right, we got to play small. Yeah, we're going to play small. Well, guess what? Their damn small team's twice as good as your small team. <laughs> so he was, he was really getting into this idea of how uh, different they were to guard. And, uh, I mean, obvious. that's an obvious point. But when you hear Pop talk about it so specifically, it makes you feel better about kind of writing it. Because even after doing this for 35 years or so, I still understand that most guys in the NBA know more than I do. And I really need to hear a lot of people say stuff and then distill it through my own feeble viewpoints and, and try to come up with a point. And Pop has always been great, always been great with that kind of thing. All right, let me ask you this, getting a tad off topic. Like, I assume you've approached uh, Pop about doing a book because I think every basketball writer and probably a ton of political writers have done the same, and yet he says no. Why do you think, you know, some of these coaches have written four or five books? I mean, Rick Pitino has probably written more books than he's read. What is it about Pop that makes him resistant to that to, to that step in his, you know, me, I guess media evolution or using that to get his message out. That's a good line, by the way. Had you used that Patino line before? Oh, no. No, it just came to me as we were talking. He's been yeah, on my mind because he's in Miami talking about how he wants to coach again, and I'm just like, why? All right. I may have to steal that down the road, but I'll, I'll try to credit it to you. <laughs> anyway, yes. I, in answer, the short answer to your question is yes, and I figured, I figured when I heard, you know, Pop was calling you. In fact, I just said this the other day. I said, well, him and Dave are probably, you know, he's probably going to work on a book. I asked Pop about it. Uh, you know, I probably, excuse me, called or texted him a few times. And Pop returns about one out of every 10 of my phone calls or something. So here's what it is, I think, Dave. A few years ago, I went out and I said, I, I got to do a story on Pop. And their PR guy, I've known Pop a long time. I think he even may vaguely like me. <laughs> but Pop just says, I, I don't want to. I don't want to talk about myself. I'm not going to talk about myself. I'm sorry. I'm not going to talk about it. I'm not going to do it. And I said, Well, Pop, unfortunately, this is America, so I'm going to do the story. <laughs> you know? So that's the way it goes. So I, I get out there and I start negotiating. You know, right away, I see Pop right away. I he's the first person I saw. He was leaving practice. He actually even hugs me. And I said, well, I'm here to do this. He goes, yeah, but I'm not going to talk about myself. Have a good time in San Antonio, Jack. See you later. So I went on for three or four days, you know, doing my reporting. And it, finally, I told the P, uh, Tom James, uh, the public relations guy who's been dealing with this for 900 years. I said, look, tell Pop that um, I just want to bounce stuff off him to make sure it's accurate. How about that? Well, Pop, of course, knows it's a trick, you know, that if I get pop i'm going to try to start plunging him with questions but he finally agrees and we ended up talking like a half hour before the game and he told me some stuff and his story was an si three years ago and it, it turned out to be a pretty good story however he reaches a point and he just he just doesn't want to talk about himself and and i know this is a long answer but i'm going to bring it to this point finally i think this is what it is and this speaks to what he always feels compelled to speak out about Trump. One of the things Pop told me that really stuck with me was I've been called 
you know, conservative or militaristic. I'm not. That's not what I am. What I am and what my teams are is disciplined. It's completely different. And he sees this political landscape, and no matter what he thinks about Trump policies, he just sees a guy that is completely, who's a leader, supposed to be, completely without discipline. And all those team-building things that you need when you're a coach, all those things we talk about as cliches, but they're so true if you have sustained excellence like the Spurs have. Team unity, loyalty, everybody pushing together, discipline, putting yourself, you know, not in front. All of those things matter to a guy like Pop. And he believes if he does a book while he's still active, those things will go away. You start to lose that. And one of the best interviews I had in for Golden Days was with Pat Riley, who told me, yeah, when I was with the Showtime Lakers, main reason that blew up was me. I started taking all the corporate calls. I started writing the books. I started doing all the interviews. Me, me, me. And it was one of the best interviews I ever had. And Riley told me that, and it really resonated. Somebody like Pop, he sees that. <laughs> that's, that's what he sees. And I hope, uh, I hope when he's uh, done that he wants to write a book. And if you and I are both in uh, contention to get that, I hope no, I no. win and you finish second. <laughs> if we're both in contention to get that, I hope you win and I finish second. Um, and I mean that. Uh, here, here's some other questions. I got to ask you this before I go or else my, my listeners will, will absolutely take my head off. And thank you so much for your time. You're being super generous with it. Um, we got to know, like, so you look at Golden State. I hear extremely smart basketball people asking the question of, are they bad for the league because they make the regular season effectively a formality? until the playoffs, and then it's basically theirs to lose. It's them against the field. Uh, But instead of asking you if that's good or bad for the league, because I hate that question, because I love watching all kinds of matchups, and I love this game, I want to ask you, what team do you believe is best set up to seriously challenge Golden State this year, next year, the year after that? Well, my my first answer uh, to it is is easy, but this year it's a little bit shaky. The best team. Well, let me say this first, Dave. Whenever I start to talk about the Warriors as a potential dynasty, being bad for the league, being so much better than everyone, I want to remind your listeners of one thing: they still have to win two in a row. <laughs> mm-hmm. They haven't done that, and all of Pop's teams you know, for this sustained bout of, bit of excellence they've had for the last two decades, did not win two in a row. It's very hard to win two in a row. So that's the first thing about it. Secondly, my easy answer would be any team with LeBron on it mm-hmm. is, is, best, is best set up uh, to beat the, uh, the Warriors. This year, they look a little makeshifty to me. It doesn't look... You know, Derek Rose, D. Wade, God bless him, but it doesn't look like even when they get Isaiah back, I think he, you know, maybe defensively gets him a little burned. And so I would rule, I would kind of rule them out. I would say right now, the Celtics, I'm still trying to figure out. I just can't. They're going on with some kind of magic 
But I'll, I'll tell you something about the Celtics. And as a New Yorker, I'm, I'm like congenitally uh, disposed to despise them at every turn. But when I look at the Celtics, at least I see a blueprint for how a team is going to take on the Warriors. When you're talking about uh, long arms, athletic wings, people guarding the perimeter, uh, minimizing the hurt of being so stretched out because they've got these bombers from 27 feet. At least I see like an ethos there. Like this is their game plan for taking on this specific team where I don't really see that with some of these other contenders. Correct. And and that that's interesting because I, I was talking to somebody the other day and Back in the 80s and 90s, when, when there, there would always be trends about, um, well, the Pistons won, uh, so we got to play that way. You know, the, the league would change its kind of playing styles. That, that has changed now. That, that the league has more or less become, since it's a free agency league and there's, there's not as much onus about moving anymore, guys will make deals. It's more become, we got to keep up with the Warriors by changing personnel. You know, we got to mm-hmm. do what OKC does. We got to, and it's very interesting. And that's Celtics, interesting. So instead of style, it's personnel in terms of the guiding correct, way that people do this. Yeah, correct. And maybe the Celtics were doing that with Hayward, but I don't think that's the kind of deal you do. You know that. You know, I don't think he's the kind of guy. He's not LeBron arriving and going. Okay, we're going to challenge mm-hmm. him. That they're doing it the way you said. They're doing it with sort of a systematic way to attack them. So I guess my answer would be right now be halfway between Boston and I would say not just because he's my old guy for seven <laughs> seconds or less, but I would say the only team doing something completely different is the Houston Rockets. Right. I mean that they have taken this new – to me, I think about it on paper and I go, I don't know. Harden's got the ball. I know Chris Paul's there now, but Harden's got the ball – 90% of the time, and if he has one flame-out game like he did in the playoffs, they're mm-hmm. dead. But I'm going to put them on even par with the Celtics simply because it's something so new and something different. And I do know this. The Warriors, I'm not going to use the word fear, but the Warriors are very, very, very aware of James Harden and the Houston Rockets. I'll, I'll leave it. I'll put it that way. More aware of them than they are of, let's say, uh, the OKC uh, Westbrooks. (laughs) Well, Jack McCallum, the book is Golden Days, West Lakers, Steph's Warriors, and the California Dreamers Who Reinvented Basketball. Perfect for all holiday gifts. I leave you with this question. I ask it to all our guests. What music are you listening to these days so we can give you some good outro tunes? Oh, boy. Who am I listening to? Uh, well, you know, I hate to go real, uh, real old school, but, uh, I just, I can't even reveal the, uh, I'm revealing my Christmas present now to my wife, but, uh, the one she's a regular listener to the podcast. So that's, yeah, yeah, exactly. She's, she's glued right now, but, uh, my, my kids might be listening. I still have still never seen uh, Van Morrison live. And I bought, uh, I bought a couple of Van Morrison tickets in a distant venue to go see him so uh you know not the only person i'm listening to but he's the first person to come to mind i've been listening to him for 40 years mm. uh maybe yeah almost 50 years still listening so 
he's the first guy that comes to mind. Nice. So we'll leave you with some you astral. Have to, you would have to. Astral, oh, go ahead. Uh, astral exactly. You know. I was going to say astral, astral Weeks, Jody Meeks. Could you find me? Would you kiss my eyes? Lay me down. Exactly. Oh, very good. But Thank you're you. You're getting a little Chris Berman on us now, but uh, I know, I know. Yeah, <laughs> that was very Chris Bourbon. Mike, enough foul, Dreddy. Um, I always if like there's that one. one person I'm not, I'm not confusing you with, David, it's Chris Bourbon. Oh, <laughs> so, well, don't worry about you, that. Thank you, sir. Jack McCallum, I, I, thank you so much for writing this book. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Appreciate the time, Dave. See you down the road. Down the road it is. That was Jack McCallum. We'll be back right after this, after a quick word from the Nation Man. Seeing that he's got clean clothes, putting on his little red shoes. Seeing that he's got clean clothes, putting on his little red shoes. And now a quick word from The Nation magazine. Look, independent media has never been more important. And The Nation magazine has been putting it out for 150 years, and it's getting even better with each issue. This week, I cannot recommend this issue enough. Uh, Collier Meyerson is one of my favorite young journalists. She writes about Baton Rouge in the aftermath of the Alton Sterling protests. Rebecca Claren on alternative justice on Native American reservations. And John Nichols on progressive organizing in Texas. You have to read this week's issue. You can do it online. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe. And remember, when you subscribe to The Nation, you're not only supporting some of the best journalism out there, you're also supporting this podcast. And now, back to Edge of Sports. Now, I've got some choice words about the NFL's rather curious choice for host city for the big Thanksgiving primetime game this Thursday. Okay, look, the NFL season has blazed new political trails as players have used their platform to stand up to racism in the face of a ferocious backlash. It has truly been a season of firsts. But there is another first on the immediate horizon that speaks to the league's baldly reactionary history in regards to race. The NFL, for all of their corporate rhetoric about being something that brings the country together, of course is a team named after a Native American racial slur in the nation's capital. That's not news. What is news is that on Thanksgiving, for the first time in league history, this team in Washington will be playing host. That means as we finish our food, slip into sweatpants, and gather around the television to watch NFL football, a tradition only slightly less ubiquitous than pumpkin pie, the Redskins slur, a name that exists only because of genocide and displacement, will have center stage. Not unlike Houston Texans owner Bob McNair saying that the inmates are running the prison as NFL players were speaking about criminal justice reform, this raises irony to the level of obscenity especially as owners and their pizza-purveying sponsors 
are trying to convince players and the public that they are enlightened about these issues. It's as if NFL owners, by having Washington host this game, are having their own private joke at the expense of players, fans, and commentators who care about these issues. All the team would say to us at the nation was, the Redskins are excited to host the first ever Thanksgiving game in Washington, blah, blah, blah. They wouldn't even address the fact that it might be a tad ironic that this team, named after a Native American racial slur, was going to play Thanksgiving host for the first time in 2017. Now, the fact that this team is owned by Dan Snyder, who blocked with Dallas Cowboys owner Jerry Jones in calls to crack down on players protesting racism during the anthem, and by the way, gave over a million dollars to the Trump inaugural committee, should not be lost in this discussion. Snyder has pledged to never change the team name with a belligerence that mirrors his man in the White House. Snyder's refusal to meet with Native leaders and his ignoring the laundry list of tribal governments and organizations who have called for it to change is also from the Trumpian textbook, creating a billionaire's echo chamber that permits only ideas that fluff the master. The same mendacious mentality that allows Snyder to deny that redskin is a racial slur is also the mindset that allowed him to say in an owner's meeting that 96% of people oppose the player protests. It's a reality of his own making, and it's reactionary as hell. I spoke to Susan Schoenharjo, the Cheyenne and Hadelgee Muskogee activist and president of the Morningstar Institute, who has led this fight to end racist mascotry for decades. This is what she said to me. The owner of the Washington NFL franchise is such a hypocrite pretending to take a knee with players regarding racism while requiring his employees to commit acts of racism, stereotyping, and cultural appropriation against Native peoples. The idea of him hosting a Thanksgiving game is quite fitting, actually. It celebrates what the name, imagery, and behaviors associated with the team he owns also celebrate in history, a time when European and then American men skin Native men, women, and children and produce them as proof of Indian kill in order to collect bounties issued first by colonies and companies and then by states and territories. This grotesque practice still was in full swing when my grandmother was growing up, so I dispute anyone's argument that this was too long ago to be an ongoing injury or threat to my generation or the later ones. Slavery in the Americas spanned about the same time, yet few could honestly deny its present and lasting trauma. Hypocrisy, thy name is Snyder, end quote. Look, in this season of racial dissent and dialogue over racism, the Washington team name has been erased from the discussion. Perhaps this Thanksgiving, we can center it exactly where it belongs and understand that a league that celebrates racial slurs can never be an engine for racial justice. Now it's time for this week's Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down Award. The Just Stand Up Award, I got two of them this week. I just absolutely had to. The first one goes to the South Carolina women's basketball team, your NCAA champions, and their decision to refuse to go to the White House. And this all goes down to their coach, Dawn Staley. This is what she said in September to the Associated Press. She said she had not received an invitation from the White House and she said, quote, and that in itself speaks volumes. Remember, September was right after the protests in Charlottesville, the Nazis marching, and Donald Trump saying that very fine people marched with people who have swastikas on their arms. 
Dawn Staley also said that if the team received an invite, this is what she said in September, they may not attend after, quote, some things transpired over the last few months. And recently, in confirming that they would not visit the White House, she said, quote, the only invitation we're thinking about is to the 2018 NCAA tournament. Thank you, Dawn Staley. And also, let's really respect the fact that she's doing this in South Carolina. Hello? It's not like she's the coach at UCLA or anything. She's doing this in the heart of Dixie, saying hell no to Donald Trump. Just stand up, Dawn Staley. The other Just Stand Up Awards gotta go to Marshawn Lynch, the goat of goatiest goat, 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 Marshawn Lynch. I mean, anybody who goes to Mexico City for a game sits for the U.S. National Anthem, and then stands for the Mexican National Anthem. That is something else. And I'll tell you something. I seem to remember that there might be a tradition of athletes protesting racism in the United States in Mexico City. I seem to remember that. Uh, Tommy Smith, John Carlos, 1968. Boom. It's like Mark Twain said. He said, history may not repeat itself, but it does rhyme. And Marshawn gave us some rhyming in Mexico City. It also did something that is frankly not hard to do at all, but Marshawn Lynch earned the ire of Donald Trump. Donald Trump tweeted about Marshawn, and he also tweeted, of course, people I'm sure know, about LeVar Ball, the father of Lonzo, Leangelo, and LaMelo Ball. This is where we get to the part of the show that I call Just Sit Your Ass Down. Sit your ass down. Sit your ass down, Donald Trump. I mean, even talking about this story makes me want to shower in hot water and steel wool. Because, I mean, when LeVar Ball fights with Donald Trump on one level, it's like we all lose. Because, you know, LeVar Ball, he gets to build his big baller brand. Donald Trump, he gets to be a racist pig and excite his base. And uh, they they just love this idea of him when he goes after uh, famous black people. I thought Sean King said it very well on Twitter. He said... Few things irritate white men, particularly white men whose power is centered in their whiteness, than a fully free black man who doesn't kiss their ass on demand. And that is certainly true. And so if it's LeVar Ball versus Donald Trump, I mean, call me Team LeVar every day. And don't think for a second that LeVar Ball doesn't know that. LeVar Ball right now in NBA circles, I think it's best to describe him as somewhat of a heel. Um, A lot of people in the NBA, you know, respect the fact that you know, he's standing up for his sons and you know building up his brand, and this is in the general sense. But a lot of people in the NBA don't like him at all. They think he's a loudmouth, and he's put a tremendous amount of pressure on his son Lonzo Ball, and that might be a way to explain Lonzo Ball's troubles um, as he starts his rookie year with the Lakers. Now, another thing that's true about the NBA is that it's pretty uniform in despising Donald Trump. He is viewed, in LeBron James' words, as a bum. So with this one conflict, LeVar Ball moves from being a heel, to use pro wrestling parlance, to an anti-hero, if you will. A rebel. And that helps his big baller brand. Uh, Whoop-dee-doo for all of us. And Trump, of course, gets to distract from a tax bill that is robbing middle-class people to pay for jet tax cuts for the wealthy. As well as the fact that, gee, uh, the Russia investigation's heating up. And guess what? The chair of his campaign in Oklahoma was just arrested for sex trafficking minors. So we got that on Donald Trump's plate, but he gets us talking about LeVar Ball. So to Donald Trump, for all your racism and whatnot, I mean, you kind of got played by LeVar Ball. He got you saying his name. That's unbelievable to me. It makes you look small. It makes you look like a bigot. Please, not for the last time, sit your ass down. 
Now we got the segment this week we call Kaepernick Watch. This week in Kaepernick Watch, I want to talk about LeBron James speaking out. LeBron James this week spoke about Colin Kaepernick. This is what he said. He said, I love football, but I'm not part of the NFL. I don't represent the NFL. I don't know their rules and regulations, but I do know Cap is getting a wrong deal. I do know that. Just watching, he's an NFL player, and you see all these other quarterbacks out there and players out there that get all these second and third chances that are nowhere near as talented as him. It just feels like he's been blackballed out of the NFL, so I definitely do not respect that. End quote. Yes, it's collusion writ large. LeBron says it. I says it. That should be enough for you. Collusion. Soak them, Cap. Soak them. And now before we wrap up the show, I actually want to read a letter from a listener that I thought was really powerful. Her name is Rachel. I'm just using her first name here on her request. Uh, And it's about something we spoke about on the show last week. Hello. Thanks for using last week's Just Stand Up Awards segment of the podcast to acknowledge Allie Raceman and the courage it took for her to disclose that she was sexually abused. You said, thank you so much for going public, being inspired by the Me Too movement, and for lending your voice. End quote. And I agree that these actions of hers are absolutely worth recognizing. I do wonder, though, how we can recognize the courage of people who have experienced sexual abuse, assault, or harassment, and who choose to not share their stories publicly. It is very brave to do what Allie Raceman and so many others have done with hashtag MeToo. Such public vulnerability invites public scrutiny of one's pain. It is also very brave to know that you don't owe anyone your story, and that you get to decide when and whether to share. It is easier to acknowledge the courage of those who share their stories publicly because there's something you can point to, a public statement she made, for example, and say, quote, this required immense courage and she did it, end quote. It is perhaps more challenging, yet no less important, to acknowledge the courage of people who treat themselves like humans, even though others have treated them as objects. Sometimes these people share their painful stories and sometimes they don't because that is a choice they get to make. I think it's especially important because those whose identities make them targets of multiple forms of oppression may encounter many barriers to going public on these issues of sexual abuse, assault, and harassment, but this does not mean that their bravery, the courage to treat oneself as a human after experiencing objectification, is not worthy of acknowledgement. I'd be curious to know if you have ideas about how we can better recognize hard and important work that is done quietly, related to issues of gender, sure, but also any other struggle for equity and justice. Best wishes, Rachel. I'm just putting it out there because that's a, um, a question that's beautifully posed in an answer that requires some real thought. And it's one that I want to think about, and it's also one I want my listeners to think about. Like how we recognize people who, for whatever reason, cannot or won't go public. And as you say absolutely correctly, uh, that is their choice. And while we should valorize the bravery of people who come forward, we should also valorize the, the bravery of people for whom existence in and of itself is resistance, given what they may have been through. So thank you so much for that. Well, that's all we have for the show this week. Thank you to everybody out there listening. Hope you have a great holiday season. If you want to contact us, you always can at edgesports at gmail.com. If you've got suggestions, comments about the show, anything like that, thank you to my producers, Dan Baker and David Tigaboo. You can always reach me at 401-426-3343 as well. That's 401-426-EDGE. Uh, please 
go to iTunes, give us a rating, leave us a comment. All that stuff makes a huge difference. Please listen to last week's show with Army Ranger Rory Fanning. We got some amazing response to that. People really love that show. Uh, you can go to edgesportspodcast.com to check that out. We're going to have a Patreon page coming soon after the holidays for folks who want to support the show. That's going to be a big deal for all of us. Could allow us to expand. To everybody out there listening, please stay frosty this holiday season. We are out of here. Peace. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.